You are listening to the Compliance Conversations podcast by Healthicity. If you work in the healthcare industry, you know how crucial compliance is to your bottom line, your reputation, and the success of your organization as a whole. If this is your first time listening, welcome. A transcript of every Compliance Conversations episode can be found at www.healthicity.com resources, along with a ton of other thought leadership materials. You can add us to your RSS feed and iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Now, let's get on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Compliance Conversations. I am CJ Wolf with Healthicity, and today I have a friend and colleague, George Vukatic, who is an expert in healthcare leadership. Welcome, George. Thanks, CJ. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you a little bit about some areas of your expertise. George and I know each other. Uh, we both uh, teach in a uh, patient safety leadership program um, in, in healthcare from the University of Illinois at Chicago. And uh, I'm, I'm so glad to have him because I know he's a real expert in, in a lot of these topics. George, we, we always love to have our guests just kind of introduce themselves a little bit. Tell us, you know, maybe a little bit about your background, what you're doing now, and, and then we'll jump into our topic. Sure, CJ. Yeah, well, actually, you know, some people find a career and they start out from day one and and go all the way through. I, I use the example of my wife. You know, she started out in the field of dentistry as a receptionist and a dental assistant and a dental hygienist and finally a dentist. For me, that hasn't been a straight path. Mine's been a, a little bit here, a little bit there, and that's what brought me today. So early on, I worked in corporate America with organizations like IBM and Accenture, like the innovation and technology that was going on. And then from there, you know, got to midlife and said, hey, I really like teaching. Maybe I can shift into it or more appropriately, I could afford to teach. So I switched into teaching. I became a professor and then a department chair and a dean of a college of business. And then about 10 years ago, I got real interested in this whole area of startups and innovation and how they all work together. So I got into the startup world. But for our purposes, what got me into healthcare was when I was in the military. So after spending time as a finance person and then as an inspector general, they allowed me to do something that was more interesting. And that was to allow me to become a health service as administrator. So I became that and uh, spent about eight years in the military working with hospitals and clinics and doing traditional kind of work as well as uh, being involved in the command of uh, what they call a quick response force that responds to natural and man-made disasters. So it's been interesting. And then that's brought me here to, as you mentioned, to UIC to, to be a faculty member in the patient safety leadership program at UIC. Right. And then also I work with uh, organizations in the startup field. So startups trying to impact healthcare and, and the direction healthcare is going in. Yeah. Well, you've had an exciting journey and, you know, it's so interesting. None of us kind of probably pictured where we are today, you know, 20, 30 years ago, yeah. <laughs> but you kind of let the journey take you and it's, it's, that's what's part of the fun, right? It's been interesting. Yes, it has. Fun most of the time. Sometimes it's been a little bit challenging, but overall, it's been fun. And and like you say, it's kept life interesting. It definitely has. Well, yeah, you know, and, you know, that kind of brings up our first topic about change. And, and I know you you teach um, in about healthcare leadership, um, dealing with change. And maybe we just start start there because there's a lot of change in healthcare. You know, how do various healthcare leaders approach and deal with change just in general. Yeah, you know, CJ, I've seen a lot over the years. You know, it used to be more of a command and control kind of a model where you, you know, you'd have the lead provider giving all the direction. Everybody else would just, you know, pretty much wait until they were told what to do and then would try to execute on what they were told. But what I've seen over the years 
and uh, particularly in, in for leaders that are successful, is that they've engaged the individuals that they work with and allowed them to be more uh, engaged as team members, allow them to do what they feel is appropriate. So I think communication has gotten a lot better. You know, one of the challenges, uh, you know, with healthcare education, for example, is you, you go to and practice to be a great technician and you build some very good technical skills and know how to run an organization from a technical perspective, but you don't get a whole lot on the people side or the business side and how to work with people, how to be a good team leader, you know, how to communicate, what's the best way to communicate when it comes to decision-making, what's the decision-making process going to look like? And then quite often that leaves individuals wondering or just waiting uh, to be told what to do. But as an effective leader comes up with their model or builds their toolkit, I think it's very important to not only have those technical skills, which again, it's very important, but also to be able to work with the individuals around you, be able to communicate with them, share how decisions will be made. Uh, if there's a problem or a challenge, be able to talk about how to address that in the best way. Do you, and do you think those, you know, what you just said about seeing kind of this evolution a little bit, going from kind of a command center, you know, I'm in charge, just do what I say, to a little mm -hmm. bit more collaborative. Is that generational changes? I mean, what, I don't know if you have any yeah. thoughts on that. I mean, what, why is that happening? You know, I, I think it is, you know, part of it is, you know, in when I grew up, you know, it was, you know, just do what you're told to do, listen, and then execute on what you were told. I think, uh, you know, as our society, at least in the U.S. has evolved, uh, it's been more that where people have options and they can choose to stay with an organization or work with a certain individual or group of individuals or not. So I think part of it is generational, but I also think part of it is that uh, individuals in the various fields are, are learning better and they're having a better understanding of how to make decisions and execute on projects themselves. So I think it's a combination. Part of it is generational. And I think part of it is realizing, you know, when we talk about inclusion and bringing people together, getting their input, because some individuals may know about their specific area better than others. And then you still Right. that overall person to, to run the project, as I call it, or run the operation. But uh, but I, I think it's a combination. So I think it's better education, allowing individuals to make better decisions, and then also generational, that uh, the way our, our society has evolved. Yeah. You know, and when it comes to kind of leadership, we've seen, I think there's different styles. And I, I don't know what your thoughts are, if there you know, is one style or one approach the way for everybody. It seems like sometimes personality of the leader has a difference um, and there's these different leadership styles and approaches. Some are probably more effective, but what are your thoughts around that, especially as it relates to change in healthcare? Are certain leadership styles and approaches better um, than others? You know, CJ, you touched on a very interesting point. So, uh, you know, when I teach the, the the leadership course over at the University of Illinois Chicago Patient Safety Leadership, when I teach the leadership course, we look at a bunch of different models. You know, we look at steward leadership, command and control leadership, participative leadership. But what I tell the students in the end, it's like, you know, we've looked at all of these different models and they all have certain characteristics and impact. What is important for you to learn while you're in this program is what the tools are and to build your own toolkit. So look at the tools you have for your toolkit, but even more important is to read the situation you're in and understand the situation and then use the right tools in that situation. There are times when you want to engage others and get more of their input. There's times when you don't have that luxury. We just have to get things done. So I encourage everybody to study all the different leadership models, and, and there's a lot of them, but from there, build your own toolkit and then realize 
what tools you should use come into play by understanding the situation, be able to read the situation, the individuals that are involved with you, the criticality of the situation. So you need to have an overall understanding. And once you have that understanding, then you've got a, a nice set of tools that you can pull out and use, uh, you know, whether it's, it's physical tools or mental tools, whatever needs to be to get the process done. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say is even though some of us might have and some leaders might have a preference of their overall general style. Maybe I'm a collaborative leader or I'm a more of a command leader, even though I might have certain preferences, it depends on the situation. As you mentioned, you know, there may be something where there's not enough time, you know, to do a full collaborative session and you just have to make some decisions. And so what I'm hearing you say is it's important to, to be able to adapt and maybe use a different style depending on the situation. Yes, exactly, CJ. Yeah, you know, they talk about, oh, you should, you know, empower everybody. Well, the fact is some people don't want to be empowered. You know, that's the challenge. So you need to be able to, to see if people are willing to jump in and get involved and be empowered. And if they're not, you know, you may need to give them a little bit of a nudge or lead them a little bit more. So yes, that, that's exactly it. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that I know you and I talked about and communicated about before is just this concept of change. And some change is planned and some is not planned. Like, like I don't think any of us planned for the pandemic before it happened. That may be considered an, un, an unplanned change that we needed to make. But then others are, you know, you may be doing like a strategic initiative and you're like, okay, this is going to be a two-year thing um, and it's planned. You, you are choosing to do it. You're wanting to go in a certain direction that's going to require change. Do you have thoughts and comments on the difference between kind of planned change versus unplanned change? It's a good point. And part of it sometimes is the pressure you're under. So, you know, it's it's always nice if you can plan for a change, if you see the opportunity. So if you have the time and the luxury of seeing what the opportunity to be better is, you know, people always talk about how is it going to be better, faster, cheaper. So if you have the opportunity to look at it from a long-term perspective and create that vision and then share that vision with others, the stakeholders, basically, you know, whether it's, you know, other providers, whether it's patients, whether it's the community. So if you can build that vision and then get people to engage in that, um, th that helps. Other times, things happen. You know, use COVID as an example, and uh, and that forces change. You know, if you look at how things have changed due to COVID, you know, telehealth booming, for example. So what does that drive? So now that we've shifted to telehealth in some ways, what are the tools and technologies that can help us build better? You know, so those are a lot of things that come in play in the play. And, uh, and I just use one example, you know, in, in the course I teach uh, at UIC, you know, we use this example of children's hospital and clinics, you know, this is a force change. And, and they use the example of Julie Morris, who we've actually interviewed as well. And there's a, not to push another program. But if you look at some of the YouTube programs, if you look at Julie Morith and some of the things she did at Ch Children's Hospitals and Clinics in, in Minnesota, it's a Harvard case study as well. You know, there was a situation where change needed to happen, but fortunately the organization saw the right person. They brought her in. She had a well-defined model. She wanted to engage people. She changed the, the culture of the organization. So she said, you know, if we look at this organization, what we need to do is one, realize there's a problem, two, empower people so they can make a change. Change. Three, not shoot the messenger, reward them for bringing up their, their challenges, and then finally execute. So that's one example of, you know, where change is forced on you or you don't have the time and you have to react. And, and so that's one example. Uh, another one, um, you know, we've, we've had some other areas uh, where we've looked at, you know, taking care of the caretaker. COVID has brought that up. And, uh, and with that, you know, we've looked at models and how we've had to change. And, uh, 
And so we've looked at those different areas. So again, we had a Dr. Joe Shapiro come in to talk. We did a webinar with her and the whole focus of that was taking care of the caretaker. And in times like COVID where nobody had a well-designed model, you know, it was, who do you go to for information? There wasn't always the, the expert source, you know, people had different perspectives, different sources. So where do you go to for information? How do you pull people together and then come up with what's best? So Again, to your point, sometimes it's forced. Like when COVID happens, what do you do? That creates new things to come up like telehealth. While telehealth becomes popular, what do you need there? You need to create tools and capabilities that help facilitate that model. And then if you have the luxury of having plan change, where you know that things are going to happen, uh, where you know technologies are changing. I, I guess, for example, one of the things now is wearables, uh, you know, where people can look at wearables. I look at this convergence of technologies coming together where you have the wearable, it transmits the data, you have algorithms that can analyze the data, and then they can be predictors of what can happen. So again, there's two areas, realizing which one you're in, getting stakeholders engaged. If you have the time to, to bring them in, that's very helpful. And then and building your case or telling your story for why change needs to happen also comes into play. Yeah. And, you know, I've worked in, like you, I've worked in a lot of different organizations and I've seen different leadership styles, at, you know, mm -hmm. at the highest levels. And some leaders are really good with kind of that crisis control and that crisis management, and they thrive on that. Um, yes. And then others seem to be really um, exceptional, like from a visionary standpoint where it's like, okay, where am I taking this organization over the next five years? Um, and, and I've seen people that specialize in crisis management, right? When an organization's in a yeah. certain crisis, they bring yeah. in certain leadership types, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's very appropriate. You know, it, it, the old model used to be, you know, you hire somebody and they stay with an organization for 20, 30 years of their whole career. That's not necessarily the case as changes continue to happen. And whether it's it's the kind of change that gives you the opportunity to plan or the kind where you say the crisis management, where you have to just get in and do something that requires different personalities and those, those circumstances change. And I think having the ability or flexibility to bring people in and out is okay. It's not a bad thing for people to only come in for a couple of years to change an area here or there. So from my perspective, having the right person at the right time uh, is the way to run an organization. Yeah, I've seen uh, working with other organizations in healthcare specifically, some people even refer to themselves as turnaround agents. So yes. you know, mm -hmm. like, in like in revenue cycle or in finance, you know, I, I was brought in to turn this around and, you know, they were given three years or, or something or, you know, I'm in operations or quality and I, and I was asked to do kind of be a turnaround agent and, um, and they do that and then they move to the next organization and they're good at it. Yeah, and I think that's okay. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Right. You get people up and running and you get them on kind of a maintenance mode and then you may need other leadership for kind of that maintenance mode. And the one thing you mentioned that made me think about uh, force change, sometimes force change can be good. And even though we don't like it at the moment, if you look at it, you know, five years later and you look back at it, you're like, you know, I probably wouldn't have done that if I hadn't been forced to. And now I see the benefits. And I'll give you an example. You mentioned telehealth and telemedicine. It's been, it was around before COVID, um, yes. but I saw some hesitance, hesitancy in some cultures to use it, even though the tools were already there. It wasn't until they were kind of forced to use it during COVID. And now some of the people that were hesitant are seeing some of the advantages. I'm not saying, you know, it, 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 it was all roses, <laughs> uh, right, there were, right, there were right. challenges, but they might not have actually gone to the extent of using telehealth to the extent they did if they hadn't been forced to. And then they saw, whoa, I didn't realize it could do that. 
uh, we're going to keep that. Even, you know, as, as the pandemic hopefully will completely go away, um, they're like, oh, now look at these advantages. And so that force change can, I think, sometimes be good in the moment you feel like, oh, I don't want to do it. The other example that I think of, and, and you know, I kind of come from a clinical background in medicine, um, a lot of medical advances happen during war. And, you know, you were in the military. Yes, and, yes. Um, and, it, you know, it's because there's crises going on and, you know, certain medical procedures that might not have been tested, you know, in, in peaceful times have to be done, you know, in, in combat and those sorts of things. And you see some of these advances that are pushed by, um, and I'm not saying that I want crises to happen so that we can get advancements, <laughs> but <I> understand, <laughs> but you can, you can sometimes get a silver lining out of that cloud. Do you believe in that or? I do actually CJ, you know, a lot of times it's the circumstances you're under and the greater the pain that the greater the need for change. Uh, I've got to, I got to share one story early on in my career. I was involved in, in a consulting project where I went into an organization and we were looking at making some changes. Now we had luxury here because the organization said, well, what should we do? And they started out with uh, saying we should do a stakeholder analysis. So, so George, you and some of the other consultants go out and talk to individuals about what changes they feel would most improve the organization and would give a better face face to the patients they serve. And uh, I remember talking to one individual and I, I said, so, you know, so, you know, so what do you think could be better or change to make a difference? And his comment back to me was, George, I only have another eight years to retirement, so I don't want to have to learn anything new. So I'd appreciate if you didn't change anything. Right. And I was just shocked by it. And, and that still stands with me today, you know, like 20 years later, this person saying, I've only got another eight years to retirement, so I don't want to learn anything new. So don't change anything. And it's like, no, no, no. Eight years is a long time. You need to yeah. change things. You need to improve. But I got to tell you. You know, there's some people out there that still have that perspective or that mentality. So the challenge for, for individuals that are leaders is how do you get someone like that and how do you bring them on, you know, on board to, to help make change happen? So those are where the challenges yeah. come in. And uh, and again, it's, it's having a leader that can tell the story, can show the vision and, and show why it's important for, for everyone to make change and make things better. Yeah. And I saw that, you know, in electronic medical records as, you know, mm -hmm. you know, once a physician finishes medical residency, you know, maybe they're in their late twenties, mid to late twenties uh, for some of the earliest, you, you know, you've got docs now practicing 40 and 50 years after that. Yeah. Well, yeah. those early docs are comfortable with the technology now, but those older docs, more experienced docs might not be. And I've heard people say, look, I'm going to retire in a couple of years. I'm going to continue doing what I've done for 40 years. That may be okay for an individual, but what, we're supposed to wait till everyone retires before <laughs> as, as, an, as, a, as an industry, we advance the industry, right? Yeah. And so I, I'm curious, I don't know if you have any thoughts about kind of individual change versus like organizational change or industry change or societal change um, and any of those impacts. I don't know if you have thoughts there. Yeah, you know, it, it's a challenge because, again, the closer somebody gets to, to retiring or changing careers, I don't know that people fully retire, but as they change from one one lifestyle to another, I, I think it's it's important to, to look at that. And uh, to your point, you know, even though new technologies come out that can make things better, faster, cheaper, um, you know, is, is the motivation, is the energy, is the drive there to get individuals to change. So you need to build those bridges. And I guess the best way is to show individuals how technology can help and make a difference. You know, one of the challenges, you know, healthcare organizations often bring in new technology, but I don't know that they always spend enough time teaching their people how to use or, or how to most effectively interact with that new technology. 
from my perspective, I've seen a lot of times where I think if more time was spent, not only here is the new technology, but showing people how it can help and how it can make things better. I think quite often that's that's missing, you know, as as organizations create their budgets, they put in the budget for a new piece of equipment, but not necessarily for the training and the development that goes around it. So that's, that's, you know, what I've seen as a challenge along the way. Yeah, you know what, CJ? Yeah, yeah. One, one other thing I'm thinking about is, you know, as I've helped build a couple of these innovation and tech hubs, uh, one of the things that we've done that, that seems to be pretty effective is to create what we call communities of practice. And what mm-hmm. these are is these are groups that focus either on a certain technology or certain practice area. You try to get somebody to lead it as a facilitator, and then you try to create support by helping them find guest speakers. And you have a meet once a month or whatever works well, whether it's online or in person, and they can learn about new things. And that gives a, or provides a forum for people to ask questions, learn new things, get things going. And I think quite often, uh, you know, as we become professionals and move on, uh, it's important to stay up to date on things, whether, you know, it's it's learning informally, not necessarily formally taking or getting another degree. And I think this concept of communities of practice can make a difference. I've seen some good work around it. And I think that's an area that will continue to grow as well. That's a really great point. You know, I just think of, you know, you know, 50 years ago, how did, you know, healthcare leaders learn from other people? If I was on the East Coast, maybe I had a local community, you know, a hospital down the street or down the coastline that mm-hmm. I could contact. But nowadays we have podcasts like this, right? So yeah. like this information boom, I guess it can it can have some negatives. You get overloaded. But now people from around the world and country can hear an idea from from George in Chicago. Whereas, you know, if they lived in in southern Florida, you know, 50 years ago, how would they have gotten that information unless you published a paper? And I happened to actually read that one paper. And um, so I just think uh, there's kind of this this boom. And I love what you talked about, kind of these communities of learning and and how that can can promote change and and acceptance of change and good and use and, and using the change in a good way. Yeah. CJ, I, I think a great example. You know, I've known you for a while, but I didn't know that you had this, the, the podcast here. So once I learned about it, I went out and saw some of the previous sessions and it's very impressive. So so I'm not kissing up to you, but you've got a nice set of, of reference, you know, podcasts out there. And I listened to some of them and it's like there's knowledge out there that I would have never known about or gained if I hadn't known about it. So it's not just that there's more information. I think the challenge today is knowing how to find that information. So fortunately, we got together and had this conversation and then you see yeah, i run this podcast and you gave me the information with health city so i went out there and took a look and it's like wow there's a lot of good information out here so i listened to about a dozen of the podcasts out there and i feel i've learned a lot just listening to those yeah yeah it's fascinating and i my trouble is what you my trouble is what you just said it's how do i filter through i i just love kind of getting all this information but there's not enough time in the day for me to learn everything I want to learn so how do you how do you you know whittle it down and get the most use out of it and and one of the things you mentioned uh as we kind of pivot a little bit you mentioned before about tools and using the right tools for the right setting or the right situation mm-hmm. uh, I'm curious if you have any ideas on what tools might exist that help healthcare leaders plan and implement change you know, I think, you know, there's going to be more and more online. So the capability to organize and find things, I think we'll be able to build it. They talk about personas now, you know, what's your persona, what's your filter. So instead of just being able to Google something and Google knows 
probably more about us than we know about ourselves in some cases, but you know, what are the areas of interest? You know, they talk about the concept of smart tools or smart technologies. And as we go forward, you know, used to talk about, uh, you know, typing and then, oh, don't worry about typing. It'll have speech recognition and and we're getting there. So speech recognition over the years has gotten a lot better, but think about it. So I'm still waiting. And actually I've seen some tests on mind recognition. I think out of MIT, they've even created the device that can, you know, like you have your self-talk, everybody has self-talk in their head. It can understand yourself talk so think if you have that device and that's why i talk about this convergence so if you have this device connected to your head and while you're thinking about a topic or trying to figure something out you've got this tool going out to the internet or wherever pulling in relevant information for you so it already creates the filter so i think part of this is imagine what can be and as technologies change and improve how can those pieces come together that's why i talk about this concept of convergence so as we have a device we can wear a tool that can go out and search the internet you know they talk about predictive analytics and being able to pull that together. So I I think we're going to get to a point where you have, you know, artificial intelligence and then machine learning is going to look at the past data and help us predict the future as well. And it'll get to a point where it's personalized, where we'll have our own filters so that even though there's all of this stuff out there, it'll help us narrow down what we're specifically looking for, specifically interested in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, When you were talking, it made me think about, um, I've often heard this phrase of that person's a natural born leader. Um, Mm -hmm. I I think there are probably some innate skills that people come with or maybe capabilities, but those still have to be refined. What are your thoughts about, I mean, because I know you teach healthcare leadership skills. So what if I'm not a, or I don't consider myself a natural born leader, there must be some skills and some things I can be taught and things that I can practice to become better at it, right? You, you know, you, you know, my son, he's a musician and people think, oh, he's so talented. Well, I hear him practicing and practicing. He does have talent, but most of it is hard work and he's practiced skills. So if I'm not, you know, born as this, this great leader, but I want to improve my leadership skills, you know, do I take your class? What other tools are out there to, to kind of become a better leader? Well, I'd love for you to take my class yeah, and happy to do that. But, you know, CJ, I think you bring up a good point. Some people just naturally tend to go one direction of another. And I think some of it is inherited. Some of it is our environment that we grow up in and work in. But that said, I think we, we all have the ability to continue to develop. I used to, I know you don't believe this, but I used to be on the quieter side and the shy side. But uh, <laughs> over the years, particularly after I finished my, my PhD, I said, you know, what do I do next? And I said, you know, what the hell? I got to do something totally different. So I took some improv classes. Now, if you ask anybody who knew me back in the day, they would say, George, taking improv classes, he'd never do that. But, you know, I forced myself because it was a different way to think, a different way to interact. And actually, it opened things up. So I'm a big believer if a person is willing to try something different and do something different, they can be different. So I, I just use my case in that example where, you know, I never thought I would have taken an improv class, but by having done that and actually spent a year doing it, uh, it allowed me to open up. I think I interact better with individuals and it's it's made a difference. So I think individuals can learn. And, and again, it's just by being with people that encourage you, I think one of the challenges, one of the things I tell young people is don't let others limit your ability to grow. I think too often individuals get into an environment where they're limited by the people around them telling them you can't, you shouldn't, don't. And I think you need to get past that and be able to think what can be versus what are the limits. So that that's yeah. just my thought. But yeah, I definitely think people can grow and develop in many areas. Yes. Because I've seen um, people 
blossom as leaders when they were given the chance, though they weren't they weren't an aggressive type of person who was seeking that. So, yes. you know, there, there's people who seek those leadership positions and yeah, they have certain qualities, but I've seen some people blossom because they were put into a position, maybe the person before them, you know, retired or was injured or died, unfortunately, or whatever. And the person that was serving as kind of their deputy filled that role and they blossomed as a leader. They didn't seek it, but they blossomed once they were in that position. Have you seen that? Yes, I have actually. And that's where I think it's important to have that toolkit. You know, you may not have the opportunity, but when that opportunity comes, you want to be ready to go. So yes, I have, you know, quite often individuals just do the job that they're asked to do and they're they're steady performers. But when given that opportunity, uh, they do very well. The challenge is if you're running an organization, how do you find those high potential or those individuals and make sure they get the, the right experience and preparation so that when the opportunity opens up, they're ready to go. So yes, I have. I think that's a good example of an organization helping its individuals develop the right skills along the way so that from, you know, whether a succession plan on, on purpose or by accident happens, they're ready to go when the opportunity comes up. Yeah. And I've seen that a lot in healthcare um, mm-hmm. where sometimes it's the, the cutthroat people who are just aggressive that are the ones climbing the ladder of leadership. Um, yeah. And I get, I get why that happens, but there's so many good ones that, um, that if given the chance, and they're just, it's just maybe not in their their personality to like you know push others aside to to get that position. But once they have it, um, I've seen some people do really well, and um, it just it's fascinating. Um, yeah. we're, we're- C- CJ, yeah, actually, there, there's an example of that. You know, and those people that come in and uh, they they come in, squawk a lot, holler, you know, try to make a difference. They actually refer to them as seagulls. And you say, why why do you refer to them as seagulls? Well, because they come in, squawk a lot, and then leave a mess for everybody else to clean up. So, so yes, I have seen it, but then somebody else gets into the role and they make a big difference. So, definitely, yeah, yeah, interesting. George, our time is is kind of coming to an end here, but I want to give you an opportunity to think about any last minute comments um, about leadership, change, healthcare, um, other thoughts that, that you might have before we get closing up in the next minute or two. Yeah, well, thanks, CJ. I guess the, the key point here for anybody listening, it's uh, again, t- to the point you mentioned, uh, don't be limited by your past or where you are today. If you want to do something new, do something different. It's the, the ability is there. You know, we live in the United States, which gives us great opportunity that a lot of other places don't have. You know, having been in the military, I strongly believe that. I think there's a lot of formal programs like the program I teach in at UIC and the patient safety leadership or informal. You look today, so much stuff on the internet where individuals can develop skills. And then this concept of communities of practice is another way. Find people that are where you want to be. How can you develop those skills that you want? Find the right people that are nurturing and want to help you get ahead. And I think with that, individuals will have opportunity. So CJ, I want to thank you for the opportunity. I've enjoyed it. Boy, time time does fly, but I've enjoyed this. And uh, thank you. Thank you, George. And appreciate your your time, your expertise, and your vast experience. And the one major takeaway that I'm taking away for me personally, is this communities of practice and and how I can uh, grow in, in that area. I, I've heard a lot of these other things from you over the years. So uh, I, those were not as, um, this, this was a little bit, uh, you've probably said it for years, but this was, this just struck me today. And so it's going to be a take home for a take, a takeaway for me. Well, there you go. See, you can never know somebody too well. So thank you, CJ. That's exactly right. When you take time to sit down and talk. And, there you go. Yeah. And and listen, so thank you to our listeners for taking the time to listen. Um, 
hopefully you're doing it while you're you're doing your exercise or walking or maybe you're stuck in traffic but uh take time to listen take time to talk um appreciate george and his expertise and appreciate all of you for for listening to another episode of compliance conversations uh, until next time take care compliance conversations is sponsored by healthicity Healthicity designs software and services that simplify compliance and auditing challenges that reduce your risk and save you money. Where others see complexity, we see simplicity. For more information, visit healthicity.com.